Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bridging Chicago. I'm one of your hosts, Savannah Roundtree, law clerk here at SATC, and joining me today, we have Stephanie Mercado. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Stephanie is the CEO and Executive Director of the National Association for Healthcare Quality, which is based here in Chicago, and we're really excited to have her. So um, we always start, we're going to start back in the very beginning and work our way up to um, where you are now at the National Association for Healthcare Quality. So I know that you are not a Chicago native, but you are an Illinois native, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So... um, you grew up in normal Illinois, which I think is a very interesting <laughs> name for a town. Um, was it a normal <laughs> town to grow up in? I suppose it yeah. was. Um, yeah, uh, normal Illinois, uh, sister city Bloomington, Illinois, is located in the uh, center of the state. So it's okay. very Midwest central Illinois. And I grew up in the middle of a cornfield between Bloomington Normal and a small town called Tawanda. Okay. Yeah, sounds interesting. I am. Um, I grew up on the East Coast, so Illinois is sort of a mystery to me. <laughs> like, um, I'm just. I've lived in Chicago for over five years now, but the rest of Illinois is sort of a mystery to me. Um, so then you came to Chicago originally to go to Columbia College. That's right. Um, was it Chicago? Th- like, did you want to be in Chicago, or was it the school that drew you here? I would say it was both things. Really? Um, having grown up in the Midwest and near Chicago, it was always considered the big city, mm-hmm. and so I was always um, really attracted to that and gravitated towards cities early on. I actually lived in New York uh, before I lived in Chicago. Before I went okay. to college in Chicago, I had an internship at CNN in New York oh, wow. for a summer, which was really fun. Yeah. Um, so actually, Chicago seemed a little small in comparison yeah. <laughs> to uh, living in Manhattan, but. Um, yeah, so I came, I, I was interested in the city, and then Columbia College was very attractive to me because of the liberal arts focus, mm-hmm. and so I um, thought that that would be a win-win, that I could um, both be at the school I wanted to be at and in the uh, major metro. Yeah, so looking at the first couple of jobs you had and hearing about your CNN internship, was your undergraduate degree in communications? My undergraduate degree was in broadcast journalism. Okay. What drew you to broadcast journalism? You know, it's interesting. I would say a few things. First of all, I really like current events and news. Mm-hmm. I'm really into storytelling and figuring out how different pieces of uh, puzzles come together to form a story of sorts. 
And also early on in uh, my time in Bloomington Normal, I was actively involved in 4-H and FFA, mm-hmm. where I had the opportunity to do things like public speaking. Okay. And so that was really interesting to me. Yeah. And then also to use the power of my voice to focus on important issues. And back then I did a speech one time, I think I was maybe 10 or 12 years old Mm -hmm. about organ donation. Oh, wow. (laughs) I did another one about the power of the family. I did another one about the effects of chemicals on groundwater, fresh groundwater supply. So lots of really just different topics. But so I guess I like telling stories. I like using my voice to support important causes. Mm -hmm. And so those have changed over time, but that's what it was back then. Yeah, that's really fascinating to me. When you think of uh, 4-H and FFA, uh, public speaking, especially on topics like organ donation are not really what comes to the forefront of my (laughs) mind. Um, I had some friends in college who were in 4-H and all I knew was that they like they had cows and they brought them to the fair. And that was, that's I showed cats, actually. Cats. So we lived in the middle of the country of the of a cornfield, but my parents did not farm. My okay. parents owned an electrical contracting company. Okay. And my dad had grew grew up on a farm, and so he was a part of 4-H and he was a part of FFA. Mm-hmm. Um, so 4-H was definitely more. I would say it was a little more for the um, for girls. It was more focused on homemaking. Okay. It was about sewing and cooking. And things like that. And then um, for those of us who wanted to show off our animals but did not have livestock, we Uh showed cats. Wow. Did you train them to do things? (laughs) (laughs) No, but we dressed them up and had matching outfits with them, which uh, seemed to be very uh, favored by the judges. So they appreciated the showmanship. I think that's great. I just wasn't (laughs) sure if you could train cats. I was going to be really impressed if you were like had a bunch of trained cats. (laughs) (laughs) No, we did not. So I saw that uh, after you graduated from Columbia, you had a couple different um, marketing communications coordinator, marketing communications specialist, public relations specialist jobs, all with um, for-profit companies in Chicago. And so were these... um, was any of this related to broadcast journalism or it seems like you sort of started as the internet age is sort of taking over. And so did you feel prepared for these jobs with your degree or was it sort of just like jump in and get going? I think any person getting out of college is going to jump into a job and yeah. get going. I, I don't think as much as um, any of us think that college should prepare us for everything that we need to know moving into that first role that it actually does. Yeah. I think that it, it provides a solid base, but the working world is quite different no, absolutely. than the uh, college world. So I think, um, you know, what I wanted to do was use my experience in journalism and communications and um, apply that to more of the the business side of things and Mm -hmm. to see where that would take me. I was not going, I wasn't prepared to leave Chicago and Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't going to get a job in a major metro on air uh, in terms of being a broadcaster. (laughs) college immediately to a news anchor. (laughs) So I thought that what I should do is, um, you know, get sort of the quote unquote desk job, get some Mm -hmm. skills and see if I could create content um, from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was aiming to do. Yeah. What would you say was your the most challenging thing that you did during um, your early years right out of college? The most challenging thing. 
I think that the most challenging thing early years out of college is just figuring out what it means to survive and thrive in the working world. Mm -hmm. I had some interesting experiences. It was right around the dot-com days Mm -hmm. when people were, um, there was a lot of speculation in the market. Things were moving pretty fast. And um, there was that, I felt like some type of like um, intensity in the environment that was highly competitive and oftentimes unproductive. So I felt like it was hard for me because there was, I was always head down, mm-hmm. hard worker, you know, achieve and deliver the results. But I was not really into the social scene. All the networking. And the networking and, you know, um, the impressing of, you know, um, people, you know, with with things other than my talents, you know. (laughs) Um, And so that was a hard thing um, for me to deal with was that I wanted to achieve more, better, faster, but I was sort of doing it the old fashioned way. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing some of my young peers get recognized for their social abilities and that they, you know, went out and um, carried on with their supervisors and things like that. And I thought that that wasn't really fair because um, I was probably delivering more at work than they were. I'm I'm sure that I Mm -hmm. was. And yet they were getting some of the recognition that I thought that I wanted as well. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that they don't teach you in college is that you got to find that balance between networking and getting your work done as well. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So pretty relatively early on, you transitioned into um, nonprofits. You were at the American Orthopedic Association. And so you're still in healthcare and still a nonprofit. So was that a deliberate choice on your part to choose to go into nonprofit, to choose to go into healthcare, or was it more of a, like, this job is available sort of thing? Well, I have always been interested in healthcare, but quite frankly, mm-hmm. I went uh, initially to work for the American Orthopedic Association because I needed a job. Yeah. I had been in the for-profit environment working in marketing communications, and um, both of those companies, one was public, one was private, and both filed Chapter 11 during that time. Wow. So I had um, just actually gotten married. Uh, mm-hmm. It was planned. I got laid off, and I was to be married two or three days later. Oh. And so that was kind of a disruption to yeah. my you know happy weekend plans um, in terms of getting married and going on a honeymoon. But got back uh, from the honeymoon and thought, okay, I need a job. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I was out of work for probably six or seven, eight weeks. Okay. And that was right after 9-11, by the way. And I was getting all sorts of suggestions from people about what kind of job I should have. Mm-hmm. And they, I felt like, were trying to plug a hole for me where I was looking to find the next right move that I would be pleased with, even though it may not have been the choice that I would have um, made otherwise. Right. So when I went, um, I received a call from a former boss. I had reached out to him and said, hey, I'm looking for some work. He actually offered me a job, but I knew it would be a placeholder job for me. Mm-hmm. And I declined it. And I said, you know, I think a lot of you, I think a lot of your organization, I do want to be employed, but I don't want to disappoint you because I'm not interested in that role. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wouldn't, um, do that a couple, you know, a few months, um, later if I found another job, I don't want to leave you behind. So he said, thanks for letting me know and referred me to someone else. Um, and, and so I received a call from Tom Statzenbach, who was the executive director of the American Orthopedic Association. And he said, Hey, I heard that you do marketing communications and you're looking for work. Do you want to come talk to me? And so I met with him and uh, really felt like it would be an interesting opportunity. Mm -hmm. It was in my wheelhouse of marketing communications. 
I was interested in healthcare, and um, he seemed like a, a good guy, a good boss, and uh, the salary was right. So I thought, you know what, I'll give it a try, and we'll see yeah. how it goes. Yeah, so were there any major differences with switching to not only healthcare, but to this nonprofit sector from your previous jobs? Yes, dramatic differences. The organizations that I'd worked for before were much larger, and so the American Orthopedic Association was very small. And that meant um, it seemed like the pace was different, and which was one of the reasons I, I was actually worried about going to work for a nonprofit because I moved pretty quick, and I thought it was going to be like a slow and sleepy organization. I'd be super bored mm-hmm. and not thriving. But what I found was the major difference that I experienced in a for-profit environment, there's generally a narrow, at least at that level, I was a coordinator manager mm-hmm. level at the time, uh, in a for-profit environment, there's a, generally speaking, a very uh, narrow focus on a task. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you're in charge of the newsletter and something else, yeah. right? There's a couple projects that you're mm-hmm. responsible for in a for-profit environment. But in a nonprofit environment, it's all hands on deck. So okay. you get to be exposed to so many things. Mm-hmm. And I would say there is much more variety in the work and, and more pro- many more projects that you're working on at once. They just move slower because mm-hmm. you're moving through a governance yeah. structure. So it was a little bit um, different, and I had to adjust to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw, um, I think I was looking on LinkedIn, and the number of tasks that you list for this job is like education, corporate funding, quality improvement. It's just like a wide range <laughs> of things. So it does very much sound like you did have to have your hand in sort of every bucket there at. Yeah, but I think it was good because it gave me a lot of exposure to different types of roles and functions. And then I got to see what I enjoyed, what I was good at. And um, it helped me, I think, focus later on. Mm-hmm. And so then you made the switch to the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Re- Rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're still in the healthcare field. And now you're, um, I think you started as the Associate Executive Director of Education and Corporate Relationships, and then moved on to being the Director of Education? Actually, no. At the American Academy of PM&R, mm-hmm. I actually started as Director of Education. Okay. And my notes. <laughs> then I moved on to be responsible, f- um, I think it was Associate Executive Director of mm-hmm. Education, and responsible for corporate relationships. Um, when I so I was brought in to be the director of education at the American Academy of PM&R, and my boss Tom Stotzenbach, who was mm-hmm. at AOA, left and went to PM&R. Oh, okay. And so a year after he left, he invited me to come in to mm-hmm. talk about the director of education role. And I remember when he called me uh, down. It was a uh, job. The job was downtown. He called me down, and I said to him. I really don't know why you want me to apply for this job. I said, you do recognize I have zero experience in education. Mm-hmm. I said, I've done fundraising, I've done marketing, I've done, uh, I've did a quality improvement project. I've done a variety of things, but I've never done anything related to education, let alone lead the department. And I know mm-hmm. it's small, there's only four people in it, but I've never done that before. And he said to me, you know how to do things that I can't teach people. So... I'd like you to give it a shot. I believe that you can do it. If you're mm-hmm. you're naturally curious and willing to learn, I think you're going to figure it out pretty quick. I said, all right, I trust your judgment, and I am um, curious and engaged, and I'm willing to give it a shot. So I 
took it on. All right, yeah, because I was going to ask if it was at all related to some of the tasks you had been doing before at the Orthopedic Association, but it sounds like, no, mm-hmm. you just had a strong advocate who sort of believed in your skill set more than um, maybe your knowledge base on the topic. That's right. Mm-hmm. So um, what exactly, what sorts of things are you doing as the director of education for a medical non- or a healthcare nonprofit? As a director of education, I was responsible for working um, a lot with the volunteer physicians mm-hmm. who would um, be responsible for developing education and training for their peers. Okay. So we would do things like identify what was going to be a need for training. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, training in diagnostic and interventional ultrasound um, as a tool for physiatrists to use was not um, previously mainstream in their residency programs. So when I worked at PMNR as a director of education, that was a new technology. And so the opportunity was to start to teach more more physicians who are already practicing in healthcare mm-hmm. how to use that technology because the residents were learning it in residency now, right? right. So, the, so that training was going on, but practicing physicians mm-hmm. uh, didn't have as much experience. So we would do things like identify those market needs and try and right. um, train those individuals to do those procedures. We would be responsible for big annual conferences with didactic lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, online, we had an online learning management system that I launched, um, very, you know, um, first generation, early adapter sort Mm -hmm. of thing when those were just coming online, um, you know, uh, mid 2000s. Right. So you've always been working with the healthcare professionals rather than um, like customers or they're not customers, but uh, patients, not on the um, patient facing side of that, but with the providers themselves. Uh, previously, right. So I worked with the providers, um, the physicians, mm-hmm. um, at, for the first part of my career, and now um, working much more with the um, healthcare administrators. Okay. And um, the people who are focused on healthcare quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now let's uh, transition to where you are now at the um, National Association for Healthcare Quality. And so you are currently the CEO and executive director. So just give us a brief rundown of what the uh, National Association for Healthcare Quality does, who they are. Sure. So um, NACU, um, as it is abbreviated, okay. is um, <laughs> is an organization. It's a um, nonprofit uh, membership organization, and we hold the only certification in healthcare quality. So the reason why we exist is to advance a coordinated competent healthcare quality workforce. Mm -hmm. And we do that through education and training of individuals. We do that uh, through that certification, the only certification in healthcare quality held by 12,000 individuals uh, worldwide. And we um, also focus on competency-based training and development um, and and do that not only with individuals, as I mentioned, but we support healthcare organizations to train their teams so Mm -hmm. that they are a ready workforce Mm -hmm. to deliver on quality and value concepts. Okay, great. And so how did you come to be here? So um, I had spent about seven and a half years at the American Academy of PM&R. By the time... um, I was ready to think about a new role. I had um, held almost every job that associations offer Mm -hmm. um, outside of working in um, advocacy. Mm -hmm. So um, I had felt like I had a really good grasp on what an association was, really good experience in all the different departments that an association generally has. And I was really um, 
ready to be an executive director. Mm -hmm. So I actually approached Tom, my uh, mentor and boss at the time, and said, you know, we'd been talking about it for a while of, you know, when would be the right time for me to make a move. And I let him know that I was asked to interview for the role at the um, National Association for Healthcare Quality. And I thought about actually not doing it because when they called me, um, and told me about the opportunity, I asked them, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. I think I could really sink my teeth into it. This seems like, quote, unquote, my job. Mm-hmm. But when do you want someone to start? And they said, oh, we want someone to start in September. And I told them then it wasn't going to work out because I was actually, um, I think, about five and a half months pregnant oh, wow. with my second <laughs> child. And I said, well, if you want someone to start in September, I can't start in September because I have a baby on the way who's coming in September. And they said to me, if you um, interview with us and we identify you're the right candidate, then we'll wait for you. Wow. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. All right. um, Let's talk. Yeah, it seems like you um, have really mastered having all these big life changes like, together. <laughs> oh, like, yeah, I don't know about mastering. Start a new job and get yeah. married in the same all month. Right. I'll yeah. have my second child and mm-hmm. start this whole new job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously you said you'd held all these other positions within an association before, but um, what was the adjustment like to being um, an executive director versus, or a CEO versus you know lower down in the association? So, um, I think that the, the biggest change for me in terms of taking that like number one spot is Mm -hmm. just having the total accountability for the organization success. Yes. The staff are contributors and do a beautiful job. Yes. The board is a contributor and does a beautiful job. Um, but there is, um, you know, really one source of accountability in an organization Mm -hmm. and making sure that all those other things are working is, was my responsibility. Yeah. And also, too, when I came into the organization, it was not thriving. And so I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to help it thrive. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was a struggle because I needed to get the board and staff to see themselves differently, see the opportunities ahead of them differently without having them feel like I was judging them for not being far enough along. Mm -hmm. So it was a very careful line to walk to help them um, see what their full potential was and then to help them begin to achieve it. Mm Mm-hmm. How much growth have you seen since then? Uh, we've seen great growth. When I started um, working at NACU, we were a $3 million annual revenue organization, mm-hmm. and now we're over $7 million oh, in yeah. annual revenue. So we've more than doubled our revenue in uh, five and a half years' time. We have also seen increase in our certification. Uh, we've increased certificates by more than 50% in that same time yeah. and increased our membership more than 50% during mm-hmm. that same time. Um, so that's just from a metrics perspective. Right. From a mission perspective, which is, of course, related to the metrics, um, from a mission perspective, we have uh, defined the competencies for the healthcare quality profession, mm-hmm. which is something that's never been done before. And I think will be um, already is making a formidable change in the way that the entire healthcare uh, industry thinks about healthcare quality Mm -hmm. and what it takes to do that really, really well. So having defined the industry standard competencies and validated them twice in the market, both with people doing the work and Mm -hmm. with healthcare executives, we feel really good that we have a great uh, path forward and awesome building block to take healthcare quality to the next level. Great. Yeah. So that sort of transitions into my next question was going to be, so you've been in healthcare now 
for almost 20 years. So what sort of changes have you seen in how healthcare is approached during that time? Um, there's well, obviously a lot right. of dramatic changes. <laughs> so let's see. Um, here's, uh, I'll give you some background. So let mm-hmm. me give you some background. I'll tell you sure. how that applies to quality. So, I mean, I think that if you think of a couple things, I mean, payer and regulatory mandates um, have mm-hmm. changed dramatically. Yeah. And so right now we have one foot in the fee-for-service model and one foot in the value-based contracting model, Mm -hmm. which makes things really complex and really confusing. The incentives are different. um, The penalties are different. Um, So that's complicated. Other changes that we've seen in um, healthcare is the fact that um, when you talk about um, uh, care teams and care transitions and bundled payment, the more that payments come together in healthcare to um, be bundled in those ways, the more we are recognizing that the continuum of healthcare and how people navigate through it is very, very important mm-hmm. to focus on to ensure that the patient gets the best possible care for the best possible outcome. Because if you don't, this, the failures of your colleagues, you know, moving from the hospital system maybe to a, a nursing home setting and and, and others, um, there you share success and failures now mm-hmm. in a way that we didn't before. And then, you know, population health is a uh, newer concept and has us now thinking about how to go into homes and communities mm-hmm. to keep patients well yeah. so that we can avoid healthcare expenditures in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those are some of the environmental things. Um, from healthcare quality perspective, you know, over the past 20 years, as healthcare executives have been watching these changes and seeing what's going on, they have been trying to staff up and make sure that they have the right people doing the right work. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with that has been that they've done it just in time. So when they realize they need uh, more information and analytics, they would hire, of course, makes logical sense, a data analyst, for example. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they'd realize that the analytics told them that there is um, too much of an expenditure or something they want to trim down. So they need to bring in people with competencies in performance and process improvement to maybe lean out a process Mm -hmm. or many and population health, that's a totally different skill set. So they start bringing in all these people to fill these roles just in time and pretty soon recognize that there was no leaders really right. moving the teams forward. And that's when we really saw the the building out of the vice presidents of healthcare quality and chief quality officers, which are mainstream titles in healthcare now. Mm-hmm. So I think that the big realization over the past 20 years is that we've been filling healthcare quality jobs just in time mm-hmm. with no standard um, and agreed upon competency set, no tried and true job descriptions, no um, structure and order to that process. So when you create something on a local level across the United States of America, mm-hmm. um, you're going to experience a high degree of variability. And so what we think, what I think is that one of the reasons we have a high degree of variability in healthcare delivery mm-hmm. is because we have such a high degree of variability in healthcare quality competencies. Right. And so that if we can start there as a foundational element mm-hmm. and adapt to all the things that have been going on um, over the past 20 years, like you said, the massive changes, um, I think we need a little bit of a reset. And yeah. so that's what we're focused yeah. on doing. Yeah. So that seems like exactly where you step in. And so um, do you have aims beyond just sort of getting everyone on the same page and continuing to grow the number of people that are certified with you. What you, I think you said earlier that there's 12,000 people currently certified. Do you have any idea how many like medical professionals there are total? 
like roughly in America? Healthcare quality professionals, traditional healthcare quality professionals in the acute care setting alone is um, well um, well exceeds 100,000. Okay. So, and not only that, but now we're looking across the continuum of care mm-hmm. um, at people do- doing healthcare quality. Yeah. And also there's the quality curious people who mm-hmm. are not 100% into quality as a full-time role, but are also seeing themselves in our work. So yeah. I think the market is significant mm-hmm. and evolving. Yeah. And so we're trying to keep pace with that. So I think um, in terms of what's next for the organization, I think sky's the limit. Yeah. You know, it sounds like there's a still a long way to go before we sort of have national standards for quality care. Yes, there is a long way to go, but we're seeing some meaningful progress. So yeah, yeah, I spoke with a um, chief quality officer the other day. She called me. I had not known her before. And she said, Stephanie, I came to the event that NACU hosted last May. It was our national quality summit. She said, Mm -hmm. I totally get where you're coming from with the reducing the variability in healthcare quality competencies. And she said, listen to what I've been doing. And she told me a story about how she's been at this organization now for about nine months. And when she arrived, um, it's a hospital, uh, a health system with 18 hospitals. They also have ambulatory um, care and some post-acute, but she's responsible for the hospitals. And she said, you know what I found? said, I found 400 unique job descriptions and position profiles for people across the 18 hospitals. Wow. And she said, you know what I did with your tool? I narrowed it down to 20. Wow. And we're standardizing this and we're streamlining this and we're helping people understand what their job is. Mm -hmm. And we're going to support them with education and training so that they know how to do it well. They have collected a potpourri of job descriptions over you know, decades themselves that were not working anymore. And so they're coming in and doing a complete overhaul of that. And so when we hear things like that, I'm like, that that was just one person who happened to yeah. call me and tell me what they're doing at 18 hospitals. And we have other examples all around the country just like that, where they're calling me, sending emails and saying, we're doing something really special with the model that you've created. Mm-hmm. And they're asking us to help create the next version of that, the next level um, 2.0, if you will, um, to take this whole thing to the next level. Yeah, that's incredible. I had no idea there was, uh, be such variety amongst just thinking about, you know, you want to think you walk into a hospital and you're going to get sort of the same interactions anywhere, but um, seems as that's not the case. I, you'd be hard pressed to get the same interactions at the same hospital with the same staff. Yeah, um, that's incredible. So, um, what advice would you have for someone who's just starting, maybe wants to get into this um, sort of career trajectory as well? Um, healthcare CEO <laughs> career trajectory? Or just or um, in the quality care, um, healthcare field, what advice would you have for like someone just starting out? Let me answer a clarifying question. Do you mean starting out, so in healthcare quality who works in healthcare or someone who's following a path of leadership and associations in healthcare? Why don't we do both? Okay. Um, Okay, so someone who's starting out in a healthcare quality role, um, you know, healthcare quality is really interesting because there's no defined academic pathways to Mm -hmm. arrive in the healthcare quality function. So we find that healthcare quality professionals are generally more like-minded than they are like type. Mm -hmm. So I would say that they should um, find a professional home, um, 
I think that that can be with NACU because we do support individuals with that. And I would say too, think about certification. If you have an organ, if you have a profession that does not have an academic pathway and it's trying to, to, you know, kind of, um, bring itself together, what you want to do is align with the professional groups, get the certifications, find peers to network who, um, you see yourself aspiring mm-hmm. to their role, yeah. things like that. Um, I think that that's really important. And I think it's an important to be, to, to be that quality curious and just kind of see what you're interested in as it relates to quality, because there's a lot of different functions that people could, um, participate in and have a really successful career as a quality professional. Um, from the perspective of how to succeed as a young person in a working environment, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, for-profit, non-profit, um, regardless, I think it's really important to find a mentor who is willing yeah. to invest in you. Mm-hmm. And it's really important too, for you to realize as, um, you know, someone who's growing up in the, um, the working world that, um, there are no positions that are gifted to you Mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of long hours. Mm -hmm. It takes patience and perseverance and emotional integrity and grit to get to the other side of where you think your goals are. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long Mm -hmm. time. And so I would say patience is a virtue, but, um, setting high expectations for yourself and working to achieve them, um, is, is always great. So keep, keep reaching. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really great as you were talking, it was very clear that you have had, uh, mentors who are, who have been willing to invest in you and not only like for their own gain, because you were working for them, but they were also helping you achieve higher positions as well. So, and I think that's really important to be able to find people, um, that will, help you in your own path as well. I agree. You know, very, very early on in my career in the for-profit environment, I had a couple of um, supervisors who I would not describe as um, coaches or mentors. I felt like they were playing the gotcha game Mm -hmm. and really wanted to, um, instead of trying to build me up, they uh, found joy in pointing out my shortcomings. And in all seriousness, being a young person right out of college, I thought that this might be what the working world was like or how it was supposed to be mm-hmm. because I didn't have a good example of, uh, of anything else in my first couple jobs out of school. And when I did find that coach and mentor, I, I actually wasn't sure it was for real. Yeah. I thought the gotcha game was just mm-hmm. delayed and that maybe it wasn't sincere that this person wanted to give me opportunities and experiences to improve myself. But over, you know, weeks and months and years, I realized that it was very sincere and it really inspired me to want to do the exact same thing and to give people the opportunities to improve themselves Mm -hmm. and, um, support them in the way that I was supported. So now I have the privilege of doing that with a much larger team Mm -hmm. and I'm very involved with all of my team, even, um, you know, our, our junior staff, our administrative staff, I meet with them one-on-one, um, usually quarterly, at least for their first year mm-hmm. that they're, uh, on the NACU team. And then we start establishing classes. So we'll have a class of 2019, a class of okay. 2018. And then yeah. I meet with those classes, um, of staff, uh, a few times a year as a group, just mm-hmm. to touch base, check in, how are you doing? Do you understand where NACU is going? Do you have any questions, comments, concerns, and just as a way to 
keep in touch with them and help them see where the organization is going as well. Wow, yeah, I think that's incredible. I think finding good mentors can be, you know, sometimes few and far between, unfortunately, in the working world, but once you find them, um, it definitely pays off. And I think it's great to sort of pay it forward in that way as well. Um, so I think that about wraps up our conversation, unless you had anything else you wanted to cover? No. All right, great. Stephanie, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for stopping by. Me too, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.